You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Israel's unbelief. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in Him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when He said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in Him will never be disgraced. Romans chapter 10. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart And my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Salvation is for everyone. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth, and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. But I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, All day long, I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. 
That's all the passive aggression you're going to get today. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time, for this space. All of it is a gift from you. And we know that you have plans and purposes for this time. We're not here by an accident. Each one of us is, is willed to be here by you, and you are willing to bless us richly. So I pray that you would. Lord, may we take down every barrier between us and you. May we present ourselves to you open and humble and willing to be shaped, to be more like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You might be a little confused. Here's why. If you were here last week or you listened online, you would have heard us uh, preach a message from Romans chapter 9, where Paul's major burden is that the people in the church in Rome and us here today, that we would understand that salvation is a gift of God, that it is wholly wrought by God, and that God operates in salvation history uh, fully sovereign and free to do what he wills. So he chooses for himself a people to be saved, and he does that before the foundation of the world, before anyone's born and done anything good or bad to deserve it. That's Paul's big idea in Romans chapter 9. And then you get to Romans chapter 10, like we have today, and Paul has this real emphasis on the, the, the vital necessity of preaching the gospel, speaking the good news, and of people responding to it. That there's a great weight of responsibility on people to both present and respond to the good news. And those things in Paul's theology, in God's word, those things are not contradictory. They go together. They always go together. And I think what it is really is a difference in perspective. That in chapter 9 you get this big cosmic view of God's work of redemption. And in chapter 10 we're zooming into the ground. To the, to the temporal, to the contemporary. The image that came to mind for me was um, just recently having gone to uh, spend some time in Hawaii and um, we went to a couple of different islands when we were there. We spent a couple of weeks on Oahu, which is where most people fly in, um, and, and we'd spent time there and then we flew over to the, to the island of Hawaii, the big island where all, everything's erupting at the moment. And I was sitting next to my little buddy Judah and we were flying over the place where we had just spent a couple of weeks and I was explaining to him, you know, that's where we were. That's, you know, that's where we went to that place and we, we, where we rode the four-wheelers and, and there's the beach where, we, where we've been surfing and stuff. And he, he was kind of getting it, but he was also confused. He was like, how is that where we were? Like, we were there on the ground and now we're way above it. It's, it's an issue of grappling with perspective, which, if I remember VCE psychology rightly, we're not born with that capacity. We, it doesn't come to us instinctively. It's something you need to develop. Like, babies will just crawl over a cliff because they don't have depth perception, right? Like, perspective is something that you develop and grow in. And so he was, he's four, he gets it, but he was, it was still a little bit confusing to him. That's how we can feel when we get these massive different perspectives, cosmic and temporal, but both of them are true, and both of them are vital for us to understand. Yes, God is the sovereign Lord of redemption, and yes, we must speak and respond to the good news of the gospel. So, 
In this passage, in verse 13 to 15, this is what Paul says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The reason that people who bring good news have beautiful feet is that without them, no one can respond to the gospel. So he's given us this great sense of urgency about both speaking and responding to the good news. That's why this passage is used by most preachers to preach about the, the, the vital need for evangelism, sharing the good news, and the vital need to respond to that. But that's not my burden here this morning. Every week, anyone who preaches here will have spent a good amount of time praying, asking God for the gift of prophecy, that is, that we would be able to take God's Word and apply it in such a way that it, it would cut into the hearts of those people who are present. We don't know who's coming, right? You know what our attendance is like at this church. I don't know who's going to be here. It might be two, it might be 200, I don't know. Uh, I said there would, I wouldn't have any more passive aggression, but that's my last one, I promise. The point is, we don't know who's going to be here, but we're asking God that this wouldn't just be a generic message, right? That this would be prophetic. It would grab a hold of the hearts of the people who are here. Even the people who are listening online, we'll never meet in a thousand years. And so the burden I believe God gave me, as I looked at this passage and understood it in its context... I think what God wants to speak this morning to those who are in this building and those who are listening online who are unsaved believers. Again, not a contradiction. There are some, I trust, even here right now, who are unsaved believers. Here's what I mean by that. If you come to this church for more than one week, you will be guaranteed to hear the gospel. We can't help it. Like every week, we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We talk about the fact that Jesus lived a life that we could never live, a life without sin, that he died the death that we should have died, a death for sin. That he rose again victorious over Satan, sin, and death, that that he is our forerunner, into eternity, a new creation, an everlasting life, that all of this is available to those who would receive it. We, we say this over and over and over again, and so you would have heard it over and over and over again. But here's the truth. I believe it is possible for you to hear that message, for you to believe that it's true, and for you to be wholly unsaved. You can believe that Jesus is who he said he is. You can believe that the Bible tells the truth about what he did. You can even believe that he was raised from the dead. You can believe right things and not be saved. Because here's the truth. Believing true things doesn't save you. 
Believing true things, even about God, doesn't save you. I love the way James says it. He's got a great way with words. And he says in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's possible to believe true things about God and not be saved. And I believe that there are people in our community in that category, and I, by all means, would love the Lord Jesus by His Spirit to deliver you from that this morning. This is Paul's burden in this passage. It's a burden for his unsaved, believing brethren, the people of Israel. So check it out. I want you to follow this with me, all right? So in in chapter 10, verse 1 to 2, he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. These, the people of Israel, are Paul's unsaved, believing contemporaries. These are the people who he said, remember last week, he said, I, I'm, I'm so agitated about the state of my fellow Israelites, the unsaved believers. I'm so agitated that I, I'm willing to go to hell if it means that they will be saved. I'm willing to be cursed and damned if it means that they will put their trust in Jesus. And that is the key, the key difference between an unsaved believer and a saved one is trust. Paul wants his fellow Israelites and he wants us this morning to put our trust in the Lord Jesus, in all of his promises. So check this out, this, these famous verse, verses in, in verse 9 to 10. He says, If you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. True belief in the gospel is not mere intellectual assent. True belief in the gospel is not believing true things or, or ticking off true doctrines. True belief in the gospel is a deep trust in Jesus and his promises. True belief in the gospel, saving belief, is not believing in God, it is believing God. The demons believe in God. Those who are saved believe God. They believe what God says about His Son, about the sufficiency of His sacrifice, about our inability to save ourselves. This is what Paul calls believing with your heart. Right? Verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe. 
For Paul, the heart is not just the seed of emotions, right? Like, I love spaghetti with all my heart. Like, it's not, it's not just something that we express by way of emotion. It is the core of our being. Like, I believe in Jesus with everything that I have so that there is no, no part of me that is not untouched by his lordship. I have given all of myself over to him, including my false sense of self-sufficiency. That's what it means to be saved. So I want to keep going with this unsaved believer thing because I want to, I want to go far enough that we feel uncomfortable. What does it look like to be an unsaved believer? I've got a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, you can be an unsaved believer by being a Christian by association. This was me in high school, by the way, in both senses, right? In one sense, I was, I was one of those kids who was cool by association because I had enough friends who were cool so that even though I wasn't cool, I was kind of cool, but I would get invited to the parties even though I wasn't really the first on the list. So, you know, you know how you can be cool, but you got Noah, you were all cool. All right, fine, whatever. I was cool by association. You can be a Christian by association. That is like, yeah, I'm a Christian because... I'm married to a Christian, and it just makes things easier, right? She goes to church, so I go to church. I grew up in a Christian family. I'm a Christian by association. This is the kind of worldview that I was given, and so that's the way I see the world. This is, that was my, my experience. This is why I talk about God saving me, about being converted when I was 19, even though I was raised every day of my life to be a Christian, going to church. I would say before I was saved, I believed everything the people in church said in the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Yeah I, yeah, I, yeah, I believe all that stuff. I think it's true. I'm just not saved. Christian by association. What helped me overcome that was actually having a go at life without that association. So I turned 18 and I started getting into all kinds of, reading all kinds of philosophy and I discovered the work of Friedrich Nietzsche and I found that for the first time came to the conclusion that if there is no God, then there is no objective moral values. There is no compass by which to live. There is no standard from which I will be judged. There is no judge to judge me. And so you have what Nietzsche described as nihilism, which is essentially... You're free to do what you like. Might is right. The world is yours to take advantage of. It is the survival of the fittest. It is the quintessential atheistic philosophy. The reason that most atheists don't live that way is because it's terrible. But I did that for a little while. I, I did that experiment and it was terrible, meaningless. And so I sort of came back to Christianity by, by association as the, the preferable worldview. It's a lot nicer living that way, and people tend to like you more when you live that way. But it wasn't until I was confronted by Jesus himself, confronted by the reality of my own complete bankruptcy, 
moral bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy, that I was able to throw myself fully on God's mercy and trust him for his sufficiency. That's called going from Christian by association to someone who's saved. Christian by association, Christian by moral conviction. There are people today who talk about, you know, being a good Christian person. It just means being conservative, pretty much. It means voting liberal. So I'm Christian by moral conviction. I think the world's going to hell and we should get back to the Ten Commandments. I think our kids should go to Sunday school so they can learn how to be a good person. By the way, if that's why you're bringing your kids to our Sunday school, that's not what you're going to get. If God saves us from it, he will save your kids from, from therapeutic moral deism, right? Where they just, yeah, God gives us rules to live by. He does do that, but he does so much more than that. And if that's all you have, then you have nothing. I just remember verse 4, I think it is. Paul talks about that very thing, actually. Verse 4. Yeah, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So is the law important? Yes. Is, is living a good life important? Yes. Is it moral uprightness important? Yes, but Christ is the culmination of all of that. That is, those things don't save you. Christ does. It's not enough to be a cultural Christian because Christianity agrees with your sense of right and wrong. It's not enough you'll be an unsaved believer. What about Christian by convenience? This is a weird one, right? This is pretty much only us and a few other countries in the world have Christianity by convenience. Most people have Christianity by torture, right? We have friends we'll pray for in this service who are underground worshipping Jesus because otherwise they get killed, right? So this doesn't make sense to most of the world, but to us it can be convenient to be a Christian. I don't want to tell you how many times I picked up the phone and people on the other end saying, I need to get the kid christened because the school needs to see a certificate. Like, yeah, that's not really what baptism's about. Baptism's about death, burial, and resurrection. Huh. I thought it was about enrollment. <laughs> no. All of these things are markers of the, the unsaved believer. But by far the most common unsaved believer is the self-righteous Christian. It's an oxymoron, really. Just like unsaved believer. The self-righteous Christian. I tell you what, it is impossible to be at the same time self-righteous and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. These are the people who Paul has a burden for in this passage, all right? So let's take a look at it. He says in, in chapter 9, 30 to 33, What shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, 
I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The people of Israel are self-righteous people. These unsaved Israelites are unsaved because they are trying to fulfill the law as a way of righteousness, verse 31. Because they are pursuing righteousness not by faith, but as if it was by works, verse 32. And because of that, they stumble. And the stone they stumble over is Jesus. Anyone who tries to attain salvation... Anyone who tries to pull themselves up by the spiritual bootstraps will fall. They will stumble over the rock of offense that is Jesus. Why is he a rock of offense? Because it's offensive to be told you can't do it. It's offensive to be told all of your very best works are like like filthy rags in the sight of God. It's offensive, and it's true. Paul's burden is for these unsaved believers. Yes, they believe that God is one, but they also believe that they can do it. They believe that they've got it within them to live the right kind of life, to live the kind of life that makes them righteous. And and Paul says, for that reason, they are damned. For that reason, they are lost if you want a picture of what this looks like the stone that we stumble over when we're trying to be self-righteous he said something very very profound about this he told a story as he was wont to do and in Luke chapter 18 this is what he says To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the difference between an unsaved believer and a saved believer. That's the difference between a self-righteous person and someone who is trusting in God alone for their righteousness. Have mercy. You don't need mercy if you can do it. But if you are wholly spiritually bankrupt, then you must have God's mercy or die. So I wonder if you've ever experienced what it's like to come to that conclusion and throw yourself on the mercy of God. 
That is a beautiful thing. In sharp contrast with the pathetic mess of the self-righteous believer. So the reason that these people that Paul is appealing to, the reason that they're lost is made very clear in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 10. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since... They did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own. We live in a nation of people that love the self-made man, right? If you, can, if you can come from nothing, from poverty, and build yourself up this empire, these, these are the people that we look up to. These are the people that speak at conferences, right? These are the people that we can admire because they weren't just given what they have. They, they had to earn it. And the reason we admire that in people is because that is what we're like ourselves. We are hardwired To want to build ourselves an empire. We are hardwired just as the people of Israel were, just as the Pharisee was, to earn our way. To be self-made men and women. And so everyone in this room, and I don't care who you are, everyone in this room is in danger this morning. Every single one of us needs to examine ourselves. So here's what I know is happening. As you hear a sermon like this, people come to mind and you're like, man, I wish they were here to hear this. They need to hear this. You know, your boss who's really self-righteous or your mother-in-law or your child, whoever it is. Now that may be true, they may need to hear it, but you need to know that you need to hear this. The question that we need to ask ourselves honestly this morning is, am I trusting Jesus? Am I trusting Jesus? Have I thrown myself on the mercy of God? Am am I actively trusting Him to keep all of His promises? Or have I given intellectual assent to some of these truths, but really I am trusting in my own self-righteousness? Something we need to know that is that all of us, by default, go to self-righteousness. We do it in our nature. If we let it go, that's where we'll go every single time. We do it by nature. And so, if that's true, what we need to do is 
enact a continual, recurring work of challenging that false gospel. I don't know if you guys have any grass in your backyard, but we've got a fair bit. And it takes some coaxing, but eventually, every couple of weeks, I go out the back and mow the lawn. But I would love it if, 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 it could just, if I could just make it so, and maybe we can do this with genetic engineering or something, but, but where you just have to mow once and then it stays that way. Like you just hit pause on that grass. I know some of you have fake grass. That's not the same thing, right? We're talking about real grass grows. It does it because it's in its nature. It can't help but grow. And so I've got to continually go out there and hack it down. And, 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 and the point is, this is exactly the same with our pride, arrogance, and self-righteousness. It will grow unless we cut it down. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning to cut it down. So I'm going to be done in a second. We're going to stand, we're going to sing together, and a group of the most loving people I've met are going to be over here to the side, and they're going to be waiting to pray with you. They're going to be waiting for people in this congregation to come and throw themselves on the mercy of God. People who know that that when they do that, God is merciful and kind and loves to run down the road to meet us, embrace us, and throw a party with us. That's who God is. That's his nature. Some of us need to do that thing, that action of getting up, taking a stand, and walking to someone who is there to meet with us and to pray with us. That is a powerful action that will overcome instinctive self-righteousness. So I want to say to you this morning, come to Jesus. Come to Christ alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Is that true of you this morning? Or have you started to take some of that responsibility back? Have you started to try and build your own portfolio of righteousness. If that's true, then you need to come this morning and repent and throw yourself in the mercy of God. We want more tax collectors and less Pharisees. I think we're all familiar with this scenario, and I love it. I love, I love the image that it gives us, right? We were thinking about coming back to God empty-handed. If you've ever been invited anywhere for lunch, if you're going to someone's house for lunch today or for dinner, at some point along the way you would have said to them, what can I bring? And the reason we do that is because we're hardwired for self-righteousness. It's because we want to earn something if someone's going to be gracious and give us lunch and invite us into their house and have us as guests, we want to contribute. We want to earn it, a little, even a little bit. Even if it's a box of chocolates or a bottle of wine, like, let me give something by way of recompense. And I do that all the time because I find grace really difficult to receive. And what I love is a response that you've heard before when you say to someone, what can I bring? What, what, what do people often say? 
just bring yourself. Right? That, that is what God the Father is saying to you this morning. He's extended to you grace upon grace, unmerited favor, eternal life. And our gut response is to say, Thank you, Father. What can I bring? What can I bring? And his response to you, out of the abundance and overflow of his love, is simply to say, just bring yourself. That's all he wants. Let me read the last couple of verses I find the most beautiful. Verse 11 to 13, chapter 10. Anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you come forward this morning and give yourself wholly from the heart, from the core, give yourself wholly to Jesus, trusting in Him, in His work, in His righteousness, in His promises, then you'll never be put to shame. And God is waiting to richly bless you as you call on Him. I'm going to pray then we're going to invite you to come forward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this precious word. You love us so much that you want us to know the truth. You want us to know that we're in danger whenever we tend towards self-righteousness. And you want us to know that there is safety in throwing ourselves on your mercy. We praise you our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, that you did everything that needs to be done and said it is finished. Oh, Holy Spirit, I know that you are calling us now, calling us to call on you, calling us to give ourselves wholly and from the heart, calling some of us to first-time trust in you and your promises, calling some of us to renew that trust where we have started to build our own righteousness. Please do this beautiful, loving, miraculous work in our hearts, in this place, even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.